HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. All right, hello. Um, I'm Lisa Held. Thanks for joining me for this special live episode of The Farm Report. Um, the Farm Report is a heritage radio network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. And we're here today um, as part of the Smart Cities series, and we're going to talk about how food and agriculture fits into that framework. So how to grow food in cities and the impact that agriculture can have on cities. Um, and I can't think of anyone better to do that than um, the guests I have here with me today. Um, so, Viraj Puri is one of the founders of Gotham Greens, um, and Gotham Greens is a world leader in hydroponic rooftop uh, greenhouse farming. Um, and then I have uh, Anastasia Cole-Plakius, um, and she's one of the founders of Brooklyn Grange, which is the world's largest rooftop farm operation, um, and there's multiple locations in New York. Um, and it, it's kind of a cool partnership because most of the growing that Anastasia is involved in is outdoor, and most of the growing that Viraj is um, involved in is indoor, so we kind of have this cool uh, indoor-outdoor. We, we can talk about everything. <laughs> Thank you both for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's great to be here. To be here. Um, so to kick things off, I think um, for people who don't know about Gotham Greens or Brooklyn Grange, um, can each of you just kind of paint a picture of what your operation looks like. You've both been doing it for a long time. Um, what is your what is um, your approach to urban agriculture? And then what do your farms look like? How many do you have at this point and where are they? So I'll start. Uh, I'm with Gotham Greens. And so what we do is we're an urban farming company headquartered here in Brooklyn, New York, uh, founded back in 2011. And uh, we develop and operate um, greenhouse facilities for fresh vegetable production. So these are climate controlled um, glass and steel buildings uh, that enable us to uh, grow um, highly perishable fresh produce um, consistently and reliably all year round. Um, and the genesis of the business was trying to really address this supply chain, um, this commodity supply chain of produce that really starts in a couple of 
uh, counties in California and Arizona that grow like 98% or something of the, uh, the domestic um, leafy greens and herbs um, in this country. And then all that produce has to be shipped you know, across the country to reach consumers on the East Coast. And it's a very sort of uh, difficult supply chain. There's a lot of wastage. There's a lot of middlemen along the way. And, and ultimately, consumers here on the East Coast get an inferior quality product that isn't as nutritious, isn't as fresh. And there's a lot of waste along the way. So um, greenhouses, um, specifically hydroponic greenhouses, uh, we feel are a really good solution to grow um, high quality uh, produce efficiently in urban areas where we don't have a lot of arable land or, or good fertile soil. So with that being said, um, we've been around for you know eight or nine years. Uh, we operate three uh, commercial scale greenhouse farms in New York and one in Chicago totaling about 200,000 square feet. And um, the yields that we get are equivalent to, you know, almost 100 acres of, of field farming. Oh. And um, we have about 150 employees. And what's exciting is we're uh, building another three or four farms in, in some other cities across the country. So, um, yeah, it's been, it's been a fun journey. And, uh, and each farm that you have, um, you only sell the, um, the produce from that farm in that region, is that right? That's right. Yeah. Um, we primarily sell our produce through conventional retail channels, so think supermarkets. So uh, it's you know regional supermarkets. So our New York farms serve New York City primarily. That's where the vast majority of the produce goes, but also some of the surrounding um, counties like Westchester, right. Bergen, Nassau County. So yeah, we try to keep everything within about uh, you know a 50 to 100 mile radius from the farm. And similarly, our Chicago greenhouse serves Chicago land and then a little bit of Wisconsin, Michigan. Um, Indiana. Perfect. Anastasia, want to tell us about the Brooklyn Grange? Sure. Um, so yeah, Brooklyn Grange is also a rooftop farming company. Started in 2010. Um, we were a couple of folks who really believed that uh, urban farming had the capacity to create positive change in our community. Uh, and um, so we started with a one-acre rooftop in 2010, and we've since expanded to an acre and a half in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, and we are opening our third farm this spring, just a couple blocks away from where we're sitting right now. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it's 140,000 square feet, so it's a very big roof. Uh, it's gonna more than double our square footage. But uh, Brooklyn Grange is, is a little bit of a different uh, model. We, we grow in soil, and so we're, we're largely a seasonal business. We, we do grow in, in greenhouses through the winter uh, somewhat, but really we're, we're a soil, based uh, farming operation that also uh, offers events and programming and design build services. So we design, build, install, and sometimes maintain green spaces for clients all over New York City and consult on projects all around the world. And we do this because we really believe that cities in, in 2019 sorely need green space and we believe that uh, soil-based urban farming has the capacity to monetize the creation and maintenance of the green spaces that cities really truly need in, in this day and age. So um, we're as much about green infrastructure as we are about food production. Hmm. And I think both of you um, have these operations that you're kind of hinting at like the, the scale of them and, and how how much you're growing and how much you're doing. And I think for people who have never seen urban agriculture, like how you do it, it's really, it's a crazy experience to see like one of your greenhouses just, you know, in the middle of Brooklyn, like just sort of field of lettuce or, you know, the, the Brooklyn Grange farm. Um, and one thing um, that really struck me, Anastasia, in your book was 
Um, the story about uh, when you first created the first Brooklyn Grange farm um, on Northern Boulevard in Queens. I used to live a few blocks away. It's like this gritty industrial boulevard. Um, and the story of just like what it takes to build a farm like that in a city like New York <laughs> on a busy boulevard. Can you like talk a little bit about that? I just love the visual that you created in the book. Yeah, uh, well, I'm glad you love it. <laughs> it still brings back some slightly uh, uh, upsetting Traumatic memories. memories. <laughs> no, it was a really, actually, a really inspiring and amazing experience building this farm uh, because we, we very much had the support of a lot of community members, friends, family, anyone we could get to help us haul this soil up to this roof. Um, we were, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, really the story of building Brooklyn Grange's first location is a micro tale of the story of getting a rooftop farming business off the ground. And, and as many differences as there are between Gotham Greens and Brooklyn Grange, there's really one shared thing, which is that there was no roadmap for this uh, type of business for either of our businesses. Um, you know, we're, we can't even offer each other a roadmap. We were, <laughs> we were really trying to figure this out as we went along. Um, we were borrowing from traditional gr green roof industry best practices and traditional farming uh, industry best practices, but uh, the, the idea of putting a soil rooftop farm on a building of this size really had never been undertaken before. So we were craning these 3,000 pound soil sacks up to the roof, but when you, has anyone, so we're recording this live, we've got some, some audience members, some local New York audience members in the room, I'm just going to show of hands, who's been to the, uh, our location in Long Island City, Queens? Okay, wow. a handful of folks have, that's <laughs> encouraging, I, I would love to yeah. see the rest of you out there on a, one of, during one of our Saturday <laughs> open houses, so please come visit this summer when it's not freezing cold, but for those of you who've been there, you know it's a really long, skinny building, so we had very little access uh, to get around this building because the, the longest sides of it are a very, very busy commercial thoroughfare, Northern Boulevard. Uh, it's a four-lane, two-way street that connects much of uh, Queens. Uh, with the rest of the world. And then the other side is a train yard. So we had our crane all the way at one side of this roof and we're hauling soil up in these sacks and then moving it across the roof in these little one man buggies and dumping. It was, yeah, uh, heads are shaking and we probably should have been shaking our heads at this plan as well. But um, what, what actually kept us going through all of this crazy install was the, just the support the support from our local community, but also the support from folks across the world. We did a Kickstarter campaign. We were getting donations from all different continents because people really, truly believed. They wanted to see this work. They wanted to support us in making this work. And that truly has been the fire that has been lit under us ever since. I just, yeah, something about that visual, the 3,000 pound bags of soil on Northern Boulevard. It's just like, it's so great. Um, and so that was the beginning. Um, both of you have been in this industry now for 10 years before. Now there are, I mean, I should have looked this up before today, but there are so many um, farms now in New York, and it's been growing and growing. Um, in the 10, about 10 years that you both have been doing this, how, do you, how has urban agriculture changed in New York? Like, what do you think are the biggest changes? I think certainly awareness. I think when we were probably both starting our businesses uh, and concepts, we probably were faced with a lot of skepticism, probably a lot of ridicule. People were not familiar with the concept. And you know, fast forward 10 years, 
uh, whether I'm in a professional setting or a social setting, and I mention the words urban farming, um, the reaction is very different. Mm -hmm. People sort of understand what that is because they've either been to an urban farm or they've consumed products from an urban farm or they've supported an urban farm in, in you know, a school or in a community. And so I think it's really evolved over the last um, 10 years or so. And I think both of our companies um, have, uh, you know, and this is with no sort of hubris intended, but I think it helped inspire urban farming in cities, um, you know, all around the world. I mean, to be clear, in many parts of the world, urban farming has been around for a long time as a form of subsistence agriculture, right? So it's not that our companies have sort of invented this concept, but I think in sort of more in the sort of the developed world, um, and particularly, you know, the largest city in the United States, I think we've been able to demonstrate that farming can, can be commercially viable, and it also can be a really um, great sort of um, inspiration for for economic development, job creation, investment, um, community development, um, sort of, uh, you know, increasing urban green space and sort of the ecosystem services that they provide um, to the pedagogical benefits, right? Like learning, whether it's adults or um, kids alike. So I think overall the benefits of urban farming that we sort of went out on a limb on, I think those have sort of percolated down, I think, to to a more mainstream audience. So, um, and we've sort of proven that, that we can make money doing it, right? So I think uh, that sort of financial sustainability, I think, is equally important. So it's been really fun to see it evolve over the last decade. Yeah. Did you want to add anything? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think Viraj makes a couple key points there. One is the financial aspect. I think that there was skepticism um, quite a bit in the beginning uh, that this could work. Uh, I remember well, our very first capital raise, we were trying to raise $200,000 to build this one acre farm. And it was a challenging process because people truly believed that um, this was not an economically viable practice. And, and not only did we want to create a financially sustainable model for rooftop farming, we wanted to take it two steps further and create a triple bottom line model for urban farming. So one that was supportive of you know, people and the planet as well as driven by profitability. And that did prove really absolutely challenging and is still very much a work in progress. But I think the fact that we've been around for nearing a decade, you know, it, it suggests to people that maybe there's, there's more to it. Maybe there's more to this idea of growing an industry around farming in cities. So, you know, there's this sort of, I think the education piece has been key. Viraj is absolutely right that people have heard of us now. Um, and 10 years ago, the idea of urban farming was subsistence farming. It was growing a couple pots of tomatoes on your terrace or, you know, um, folks coming together to, to plant vacant lots in, in areas where development uh, was not as fast paced as New York, but for us to be able to make this this concept economically viable in a city where you know, the 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 competition for real estate is what it is is um, you know it, that has I think really been uh, a huge driver in growing the industry. Right. Well, and the question of economic viability is a really interesting one. And you're, I mean, you're you wrote a book about um, the Brooklyn Grange, and it's the book is about the business model. It's not really about like what you can grow in cities. And so, I mean, that was a choice that you made. Um, I, w I guess, what are some of the things you learned about how to make this a financially um, sustainable business uh, along the way? Because I think that is a thing that people think like you can't do this and actually make money. Um, 
Yeah, I will answer this question, and then I want Viraj to answer it too, because I'm eager to hear his thoughts. Uh, yeah, I mean, we've, and I say that because Brooklyn Grange and Gotham Greens have very different economic models. Mm. Um, and you're, this is going to come up again and again when we, when as Viraj and I sit here and talk. Do you guys want to know something amazing? Is that Viraj and I have never met in person before today? <laughs> <laughs> I talk about his work all the time. And Likewise, <laughs> talks yeah. And, yeah, and a huge fan and admirer, but we've never actually met. And I think it speaks to something which is how different our models are. And this is the hardest thing when you're educating people about urban farming is that it really and truly is a Swiss army knife of uh, models and methods, but also benefits that those models and methods bring to bear. Um, so before we talk about benefits, let's talk about the m models and methods. And a big part of that is the economic model. Um, Brooklyn Grange is economically viable because we're very diversified. Uh, we, we grow and sell vegetables, but we also host programming, everything from uh, workshops in composting and natural dyes to weddings and corporate events. Um, we have weddings booked almost every Saturday <laughs> in season. It's, it's kind of a crazy thing. Um, and then we also have our design build arm of our business. And that's really uh, all three of those arms of our business support one another. Um, you know, people come to a workshop, they have a friend who's getting married, they refer that business, that person. Uh, you know, has a guest at their wedding who has a big rooftop on their building and we end up putting a green roof on that building and so on and so forth. So we're, we're really and truly a, a, a one single business, but we're a very, very diversified business with three very different arms. Hmm. Yeah, and, and, and in our case, uh, again, a lot of similarities, but the primary contrast there is, is that our sole source of revenue is the, um, the sale of the of the products that we grow and you know very early on we had a pretty diverse range of products and and early on figured out that that we sort of needed to get more economies of scale so kind of narrowed that down primarily to leafy crops so uh, lettuce varieties things like arugula kale bok choy and and leafy herbs and 100% um, of our revenue is generated from the produce that we sell so uh, and in order to, to make that work, we selected a form of farming known as hydroponics, which um, instead of soil uses a, a nutrient-infused um, water-based delivery system. And uh, the benefits of, of hydroponics um, uh, among, among a few are really the, the space efficiency. So about a one-acre um, hydroponic greenhouse can produce the yields of about 30 acres or 40 acres of, you know, kind of conventional field farming. So I think it's that sort of economies of scale, the yield that has allowed us to sort of um, be, be, be profitable. So, uh, you know, our business is sort of supported by um, some component of, of uh, you know, agritourism in terms of tours, um, field trips from schools, uh, but really the, the vast majority of the revenue comes, or all the revenue rather, comes from the sale of the vegetables. So for us, it's um, in order to make it viable was really the technology selection to ensure that right. we can get these really high yields um, and then to get into contracts with uh, large, more institutional food service buyers. So we don't um, sell directly from any of our farms or through farmers markets. It's more through a retail channels or food service channels. So you'll find our products in, in you know, play, on places like Fresh Direct or Whole Foods Market or Target or, um, you know, you know, places, you know, ad, channels of distribution like that. So, um, so in order to sort of also supply a lot of those institutional food customers, you know, it, it requires um, 
sort of a year-round delivery system, which is also really important. And our enclosed greenhouses are climate controlled, so that sort of enables us to do that. So, um, uh, yeah, again, like there's contrast, but a lot of similarities. But, you know, getting back to your question, that's how we generate the revenue. Right. Well, and do you think that the system that you chose, the technology, it also gives you more access to capital because investors are more... Um, likely to back something that is a lot more controlled. So, like, you're, you, you have an environment that you can control in a way that growing outside you can't always predict. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think being in a controlled environment, it really reduces your risk from weather-related issues. But, you know, even in a hydroponic environment, uh, or a greenhouse environment, rather, I mean, we're still growing biological, living, breathing things. You know, plants are not widgets. And I think there is a, a little bit of a misconception um, uh, among some observers that sort of any sort of indoor farming or greenhouse farming um, is as easy as building this fancy box with a lot of sensors and controls and computer systems and irrigation systems and you just plant the seed and you know 20 or 30 days later out comes this you know beautiful tomato or beautiful strawberry head of lettuce and and it couldn't be further from the truth I mean we're dealing with um, uh, you know, a, a living thing, um, you know, pest, pest management is still an issue, mm -hmm. you know, nutrition, um, the seed varieties that you use. So it, it's certainly a challenging business. And one thing which is really tough about hydroponics actually is, is that there's not a lot of buffer, right? You know, soil pr provides a buffer that, you know, if, you know, for temperature, for, for nutrients, for mm -hmm. water, you know, in a lot of ways, hydroponic plants are so coddled that they really need, <laughs> they're very needy. And if you, <laughs> if you break up that, those needs, uh, unfortunately, they, they won't do so well. So um, uh, it, it's challenging. But, you know, to get back to your question, I, I do think that, you know, hydroponics um, and greenhouse agriculture, um, the technology is robust and it, it is, uh, has been practiced uh, on a commercial scale in many parts of the world. So there is a bit of a blueprint, but so really what we wanted to do at Gotham Greens was to bring this technology closer to consumers. You know, it, it, it's sort of still, until today, it's practiced in a very large kind of industrialized agribusiness format in very rural areas with not a lot of regard for the environment necessarily. And, um, you know, our concept was, hey, let's 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 make it a little bit more sustainable. So examples of that is we um, we recycle our irrigation water, right? So we use these closed loop irrigation systems where we drip irrigate and then capture all that irrigation water for reuse. So we can use about 90 times less water than conventional farming. So sort of not all big industrial greenhouses do that sort of thing, right? So that's one example. And and the other thing is we wanted to bring it into the urban area so we could be much closer to that consumer, right? So literally you're closer to them, you can give them a fresher product, but then even figuratively you're closer to them, right? And you can really tap into some of those um, intangible benefits of um, just bringing that, that, you know, that food closer to consumers and a lot of the themes that you know, Anastasia talked about. Right. Um, and so both of you have started in answering these questions, have started to kind of hint at um, what you see as the benefits of growing food in the city. Um, and obviously there's, there are lots of um, ways to grow food that um, minimizes environmental impact um, in, you know, in, in rural areas. Um, so I want to kind of get into this idea that, you know, it is a good idea for the environment to grow food in the city as opposed to, say, supporting you know, local farmers and, and bolstering those systems. Um, how do you talk about, like, why we should try doing it here rather than getting all of our food from farmers in rural areas, um, even if that's locally or organic or, you know, like, what, what, what's the value of doing it in the city? 
You want to kick us off? Sure. Uh, <laughs> look, I, I don't. Th I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Right. Uh, you know, it's just it's not a zero sum game. I think uh, to have a strong regional food shed um, and generally to have a more um, equitable, sustainable uh, food system, I think it's going to require a lot of different methods, techniques, supply chains, delivery systems, right? So um, us growing, you know, a lot of leafy greens right here in the heart of the city, I, I don't think that's sort of um, zero sum to, to like our Hudson Valley farmer or right. Long Island farmer. I think we're, there's roles and places for all of us. But I think even more important, and I think Anastasia can probably speak to this better, is is just the the other benefits not just the food supply right but it's 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 making your cities a little bit more green making them more livable in improving the built environment you know there's real tangible ecosystem services around reducing the heat island effect and capturing storm water which i'm sure you can get into a little bit more but yeah. also just connecting youngsters and urban residents to food i mean you know when um when kids um and adults alike walk into um you know our greenhouse or your farm and they see uh, you know, a tomato growing out of a flower or a cucumber and a bud and, you know, there's their minds are blown, right, about how food is grown because they're used to just either buying um, produce in the supermarket um, or seeing it at a restaurant at best, you know, and in, and in economically distressed neighborhoods um, where most of the food comes from sort of corner stores and there's, like, there's this dearth of, you know, grocery stores, you know, selling produce. Um, it's, it's really staggering how few um, people in some communities have even been around fresh produce. So the, I, think, I think those are a lot of the, the, the powerful benefits of urban farming. It's not just sort of the food production, but it's all these other themes that we can help address. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's astounding how many different benefits there are to different models. Um, Viraj is being modest when he talks about um, the the environmental benefits of his model, uh, hydroponic farming can produce a tremendous amount of highly perishable salad greens uh, with much less water. And you know, here in New York City, that's not something we think about all the time, but uh, I had family on the West Coast for a while, and I tried to maintain a garden in a San Francisco backyard you know, like three visits a year, uh, and you, you couldn't irrigate it, you know. There's, you, you just can't irrigate out there, because there, it really is astounding um, how much uh, we're facing droughts in certain parts of this country that have traditionally grown uh, large quantities of our food. Um, so there's that piece of it, right, and the technology that's moving us forward to be able to grow in different ways. But there's also this very real need to change the way we're building and living in cities. Um, you know, cities, we are predominantly an urban species. As of about a decade ago, uh, more people live in cities than don't. Uh, and, and this is a really a huge shift. So now we need to look at um, cities as an opportunity. How do we create a truly sustainable way of being human? Uh, and that's gonna mean bringing green space <coughs> into cities. Because if we don't have uh, opportunities for green space, uh, you know, think about how long it takes an average New Yorker to get to a green space. Um, who in this room, I'm going to do this, sorry, listeners at home, <laughs> I'll tell you how many hands go up. How many people here have a country home or a rural place that they can go to on a regular basis? 
I think I, we see one hand, <laughs> one half a hand. It was a low hand. Uh, <laughs> how rural are we talking? No, uh, the fact of the matter is, you know, it, is, it takes a level of privilege. It takes, a, uh, you know, having a car and having the means to put gas in that car and drive to, you know, over an hour to get to green space. And, and this is a problem for us psychologically and emotionally as humans. Humans need access to green space to be happy. But beyond our emotional health, we physically need green space in cities to reduce urban heat island effect, to decrease uh, you know, combined sewage overflow, um, to create an ecosystem for pollinators, both native and migratory. Uh, so you know, when we talk about green spaces in cities, we're often talking about green spaces in very wealthy areas of uh, very wealthy neighborhoods. There is a real environmental racism happening in New York and in cities all around the world. Um, what that means is that without green space, the air quality in certain neighborhoods is really poor. That leads to asthma rates skyrocketing. Um, it gets so hot that our most vulnerable community members, senior citizens, are dying in heat waves. It's 2019. This is a first world country. We should not be losing anyone because of heat waves. And as our climate continues to change, as rain events become heavier and heavier, um, our sewer system is more and more burdened and we're forced to vent more raw, untreated wastewater directly into our local waterways, harming our marine ecosystems. So we really need to start reimagining the ways that we build cities to integrate green space into them um, and also to just think about uh, how we as humans are operating in those spaces. Are we having all of our products delivered to us on trucks? You know, are we having you know, our, our, our groceries brought to our lobbies in a, in a box truck? That, that's crazy. When we live in, in this compact, dense place, we could be walking to pick up our CSA share. Um, so you know, we really, you know, we could be composting our food waste and and creating a circular economy with that waste that creates production uh, in a way that that does not harm the health of our fellow community members. So when we think about urban farming, it's one piece. It's one piece in an ecosystem here in this super dense city uh, that could sort of move the needle and help us become a, a healthier species. It, um, I, I really, I'm really interested in the point you made about um, stormwater runoff, and especially, you know, in the face of all the news that uh, we got this year on climate change and where we're headed um, as a country. And is there research, um, Anastasia, on how rooftop farms like yours um, actually can, you know, build resiliency um, in terms of like stormwater runoff in cities? Yeah. So uh, absolutely. So we work very closely with New York's Department of Environmental Protection. Uh, the DEP of New York City is tasked with a really challenging problem of uh, combined sewage overflow. I'm going to give you guys an unforgivably brief and reductionist primer on CSO, or combined sewage <laughs> overflow. So New York City has a combined sewer system. It's two sets of pipes. One processes human sewage use, toilets flushing, people taking showers. The other processes runoff, right? Rain hitting the ground. And when we built this system, we had a lot fewer people living in New York City taking showers and flushing toilets. We also had a lot less developed space. We had more green space. So there was somewhere for rainfall to go uh, when it, it fell out of the sky. Well, now it's hitting pavement, it's hitting buildings, it's hitting roads, and there's nowhere for that rainfall to absorb into. So as a result, our sewer system is, is overwhelmed by the, the flow, especially as more and more rain falls on our city. So how do we create 
space for this rain, so the city has time to catch up with the water that is flowing into its sewer system, clean it before venting it, right? Uh, and, and that's really where green roofs can be a huge uh, asset. I think Viraj used the term ecosystem service. This is the new like flashy buzzword, uh, <laughs> ecosystem services. This is our ecosystem service that we provide is we basically act as a giant sponge and we mm. hold the rainfall that's hitting the city uh, and then release it slowly so that the city has time to catch up with the rain that's hitting the, the street next to uh, the farm uh, and then process the rain that's hit the farm. Does that make sense to everybody? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's basically green roofs are giant sponges. Uh, and at our Navy Yard farm, which is about an acre and a half, 65,000 square feet, uh, that farm manages a million gallons of stormwater a year. What does manage mean? I mean, it means our plants are going to absorb some of it. Some of it will be released into the sewer system. The idea is if you stand next to our building that has a deep soil, intensive green roof on it, uh, and you look at our building and another building that does not have a green roof and a heavy rainfall, the building that does not have the green roof, its storm pipe coming off that roof is going to look like a gushing you know, faucet and, and ours will be a slow trickle. That's the idea there. Hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a, alone is such a huge, huge aspect of this, right? Um, and thinking about the way that the city is involved in this too, like you mentioned you work with um, I, one of the departments and the... Um, We've talked a little bit about um, how there's this push in New York to pass policies that will support urban agriculture. Um, I'm curious if you think that, both of you, if you think that um, there is a need for policy that supports urban farming in the city, and if so, like, what are the important things that, that need to be put into place to support urban ag in New York? Yeah, it's a, it's a broad topic. I think there's been a lot of interest in uh, from elected officials, whether it's um, you know different mayors, uh, borough presidents, um, council members around coming up with a more cohesive policy. And, and and a few elected officials over the years have put together white papers and you know put task forces together to really address urban farming since their constituents are increasingly talking about it, right, and are espousing the benefits of it. So, um, you know, from uh, it's, it's a broad topic, um, I'll, and, po and food policy obviously is, a, is, is an even larger topic, but right. I can talk to one thing, which is, you know, we, we build greenhouses, right? So they're actually considered buildings by the New York City Department of Buildings. Um, so in contrast to Anastasia's model, well, I, the, the Grange obviously does some greenhouses as well, but, um, so these are enclosed buildings. So the Department of Buildings views this as actually adding an additional story on top of um, a mm -hmm. building, or in the case if we were doing it on the ground, it's, it, it's treated like a building. So that requires things like fire sprinklers, right. compliance with the American Disability Act, right? So wheelchair accessibility, um, fire alarm systems, um, different sort of, there's the city's plumbing code and electrical code all sort of falls into place. And, and specifically, um, one thing that, that we dealt with very early on as we were uh, looking at roofs um, upon which to build greenhouses were uh, we were infringing on sort of air rights, right? right? Or the it's ability to really build up. Yeah. So in a lot of neighborhoods, um, for good reason, I mean, there's, there's, there's uh, um, rules around density and height of buildings. And so a few buildings that we were really into um, disqual were disqualified because uh, you know we couldn't really build up; right. they were already overbuilt. So we worked with the city planning department a couple of years ago to pass a bill, um, part of the zone green text amendment to the to the code, which sort of. Um, uh, allows greenhouses to sort of not be counted toward those air rights, um, um, assuming that they 
um, are used for agricultural purposes and they collect rainwater and use renewable energy and have these other benefits. So that helped pave the way for slightly easier um, rules huh. and regulations around greenhouses. So that changed, that was, when did that go into effect? That was a 2013. Wow. I mean, there hasn't been a boom in rooftop greenhouses right. since then, but uh, <laughs> we have uh, we have certainly taken one of the obstacles but, out of yeah, the Yeah, that seems like and a it, huge and obstacle. And it in, that incentivizes would building yeah. owners and landlords to at least entertain rooftop greenhouses now because they don't count toward very valuable sort of built uh, FAR, which is known as floor to area ratio. Right. Wow. Yeah, and I and you know, Viraj talks about the support that we've had from many of our electeds and and. You know, it's not just that folks are interested in this for the, you know, the positive optics, but then they lose interest or what have you, or, you know, move on to the next election cycle. It's that it's really difficult to both regulate and to incentivize urban agriculture because there are so many different models and methods, right? So, you know, one program could be put in place that is great for Gotham Greens, does nothing for us. Uh, so if you're really trying to have a positive impact, you know, how do you do that? How do you do that with any economy of scale? Um, I uh, met for a while with a group called the New York City Ag Collective, and they asked me one day, what do you do about how expensive workers' comp is for farming? Uh, you know, work, farming is like the most dangerous industry because traditionally you're dealing with things like tractors and uh, grain silos, and you know, up on our roof we're dealing with like maybe a dull knife, like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> this is not like a super dangerous industry, but you know, we're, we're lumped in with, and, and look, this is a, I'm not asking our electeds to like work on this workers' comp issue. This is, not a, this is not a huge deal, but it's just one small example of how urban agriculture is really sort of a yet to be defined industry. And part of the reason why is because it's incredibly unique and, uh, quirky and um, and therefore difficult to define. But from a green infrastructure perspective, I will say that there are a trio of bills that are about to be heard by the New York City Council, uh, their Committee on Environmental Protection, uh, right. that would require green roofs on all new construction of certain sizes uh, or major renovations. And this is a really excited, exciting development. Um, Rafael Espinal, we met with him. Um, he's a council member here in New York City. He's actually uh, running for public advocate right now. He's, and he's been on the Farm Report before as awesome. a guest to talk about urban agriculture. Of course, yeah, he's a big supporter. And we sat down with him and said, you know, this is really what we wanna see. We wanna see the buildings that maybe don't make sense for a rooftop farm, they don't have the structural load to put you know, a foot of soil on their roof. Why can't there be incentives for building owners to put a, uh, an extensive green roof with native plants and pollinator-friendly plants on their roof um, and really help put uh, the onus of changing our ecosystem here in New York City uh, not just on the Department of Environmental Protection, uh, but you know, spread it around and get everybody involved and bring every key stakeholder to the table on this. So um, follow Brooklyn Grange on social media and we'll have updates for you on how you can support those bills in the coming days. And there's got to be at least a dozen or more cities in the country that have that in their statutes, right? For yes. rebuilding. I mean, Chicago is one, yes. um, among others. So the fact that New York City is behind on this is... Uh, is, is disappointing. Yeah, it, weirdly, New York is behind, is quite behind on this. Like a lot of a lot of other cities have very detailed urban agriculture policies, and it's yeah, mandatory green roofs for new development. Yeah, yeah interesting. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. 
Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and the rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. Um, so I could ask you questions forever, um, but um, I wanted to open it up in case anyone has questions they would like to ask. Um, we have a microphone right here. Um, does anybody want to ask Anastasia or Viraj any questions about what they do? <laughs> I can just keep talking. If not, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, um, so if you can just come up and, and um, speak into the microphone. Hi guys. Um, quick question for you, Raj. How did you choose what other cities you were going to put Gotham Greens in and like how do, at what point do those cities have to have enough, you know, like viability for you to b open a farm there? Because I'm, we just moved here from Chicago and I've, I've had Gotham Greens in Chicago. Uh, awesome. Well, thanks for the support. Yeah, I mean, we primarily looked at Chicago as the second city just because it was for a few reasons. One is it's one of the largest cities in the country, right? The third largest city in the country. Um, it's a cold weather environment that lacks sort of year-round access to fresh produce. Um, three, as I kind of alluded to before, it, the city does have um, a legacy of urban greening, green mm -hmm. roofs back from Mayor Daly's administration. Um, and, it, you know, the city's, uh, you know, Latin motto is, I think... Uh, Oh God, I'm going to butcher this now, but it's sort of uh, in, in, in garden something green. Um, and so uh, and it's, 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 it's a rich food town, so it was kind of a yeah. non-brainer, right? It was yeah. kind of a no-brainer for us. Um, uh, and then as a practical matter, uh, being entrepreneurs, um, this was obviously a big jump for us to go to another city, mm -hmm. and Chicago is relatively close to New York, and we felt like we could get in and out of there. But it, it's really been, um, uh, it, we located the project on the far south side of Chicago, mm -hmm an area called Pullman that mm -hmm. um, is, you know, economically underdeveloped. And it was actually home to uh, one of the largest and first company towns in America called Pullman, where the Pullman railway coaches right. used to be made. And then, you know, when the railroads went in a different direction and that company actually went out of uh, went out of business, it became one of the poorest um, and most crime-ridden areas in, on the south side of Chicago. And we've been a little bit uh, part of a sort of a renaissance happening there from an ec economic development perspective. So, in fact, we just bought some more land and we're building a large um, like 140,000 square foot greenhouse there, so doubling our commitment there. So I think to answer your question, um, we look at cities um, and regions that have you know large populations that can support uh, you know a capital intensive business mm -hmm. such as ours. Uh, we look at regions um, where it's difficult from them from a supply chain perspective to get year-round access to fresh produce, um, and we want to go places where we think there's a consumer base that is interested mm -hmm. in in sort of urban farming and and some of the benefits. So those are a few of the criteria that we look at. Awesome, thanks. Um, yeah, if you have a question, just come right up to the, to the microphone. Perfect. <laughs> Sorry. Hi, I just, 
found this fascinating. I've never heard of this before. And, and my question is, do you both have background in agricultural? Or like, how did you get into this amazing idea? Great question. Uh, I, I do not. Uh, my background was really just as an eater. <laughs> Followed my <laughs> appetite into this world. Uh, no, I came from the restaurant world. And um, where I worked for a restaurant group that was very farm to table focused, but uh, it really only proved, it, it only really served to, to open my eyes to the, the need for this kind of uh, agriculture um, and the need for, for businesses in cities to serve their communities in a real and, and meaningful and positive way. Um, but yeah, my background is not in agriculture and, and that's, that's the great thing about urban agriculture is that you know, you can really, now is the time. If you're, if you're looking, there are a lot of career changers who are entering this world because there's a lot of opportunity here. Um, the biggest challenge though, facing urban agriculture, and I'm curious if we have time to hear Viraj's take on this, is the challenge of paying a living wage and keeping your product uh, accessible to the wider community in a city where the cost of living is so high. A big benchmark, uh, I think, for urban farms should be, can the people who work for us afford our product? And can everybody afford to work for us? Um, and can everybody afford to, to patronize us? And, and we have to be asking our, ourselves these questions constantly, because if we really do want to serve our communities, um, then, then we have to be able to actually feed our communities the, the food that we grow. Yeah, I don't come from a farming or food background either. I grew up in you know cities and suburbs, um, and in college I studied um, international development um, and economics, and a minor in environmental science. And my career path was taking me down um, sort of sustainable technologies, and I was really focused on technologies that could address you know large macro kind of global issues of consequence. So you know I looked at green building, renewable energy, uh, worked on some fuel efficiency cookstove projects, and through the common theme through all these different technologies are what are adaptable, proven technologies that can um, kind of consume fewer resources. And then I stumbled upon controlled environment farming and was just amazed by, by, by some of the capabilities, right? You know, agriculture is the largest consumer of land on the planet, the largest consumer of fresh water. It's the leading source of global water pollution. It's responsible for 20% of global carbon emissions. So if we're serious about climate change and natural resources and, and conservation of the planet, we have to be looking at food and farming techniques that use fewer resources while being able to produce more. So that's initially how I sort of got into controlled environment farming and then really started at the same time in the kind of the mid-2000s, started to take notice of the farm-to-table culture that was becoming a little bit more mainstream, so saw a market opportunity and, and, and put a business plan together. But one of our key kind of partners in the business is a plant scientist um, uh, with the specific expertise in controlled environment farming and hydroponics, which is, which is really really essential. But um, yeah, to address you know, the wages, you know, that's incredibly important. You know, we pride ourselves on paying a living wage at Gotham Greens. And early on, you know, um, you know, being in places like New York City, we just assumed that all of our employees would be treated um, like regular you know, workers um, you know, who, have, who have jobs, things like workers' compensation, things like overtime, things like pay, uh, you know, maternity and paternity leave and all the rest of it. And we were, you know, very early on, we learned that you know, most farm workers, all farm workers in this country are not, there's a different minimum wage, right? There's no overtime, there's all these different things. So, um, you know, without even really knowing it, we, we 
sort of um, by default started uh, taking a, a strong kind of position on on worker welfare right around agriculture and started learning more about uh, th a lot of the issues and challenges that farm workers in this country face so um, yeah and you know all the cities were in you know New York Chicago among others um, you know 15 14 dollar minimum wage and up so um, we're, we're happy to be on the right side of those trends yeah I encourage anyone who eats food <laughs> Look up the Department of Labor <laughs> laws on agriculture. Uh, at some point, you will be astounded by what you find. Yeah, we're, we're, and we're going to actually have um, an episode of the Farm Report dedicated to agricultural labor in a couple weeks. Um, so <laughs> that's coming up. <laughs> um, I think we had one more question here. And then, yeah, great. Um, so both of you spoke a little bit to the social determinants of health and food deserts and things like that. And I'm curious that with these models, do you find it that it's actually economically um, and logistically easier to move into disadvantaged populations and disadvantaged areas, or does that actually present a bigger issue? Because access is a privilege, and I imagine it's easier for people with privilege to have access. And so I'm curious if you've actually found that to be harder or easier, or if this model allows for that to be more accessible. Yeah, well, for us, it's it's been easier to locate lower cost real estate that's large enough to build a commercial scale facility in more economically underdeveloped areas. So, you know, I mentioned the far south side of Chicago, in Baltimore, where, you know, in a, in a economically underdeveloped area, former steel mill, um, you know, areas in like Jamaica, Queens, in New York, and, and two neighborhoods in New York have, where we build farms have really gentrified, you know, Gowanus and Greenpoint. But, um, I think where we've been able to have a, a positive impact on those neighborhoods is in job creation. We're really proud that all of our employees, uh, most of the employees for each of those farms are, are sort of hired locally. And then those people are like in our Queens facility, we have 60 employees, uh, you know, 50 of which are from Queens and, and the surrounding area. And those people have been able to take produce home on a consistent basis every single week. They've been able to bring family members and community members and, and their kids' school classrooms to our greenhouses. So that's kind of exposure has really helped. What's been a lot more challenging is, is getting the food into the stores in those neighborhoods, just due to systemic issues around food distribution. Um, you know, we've literally gone to bodegas and corner stores and offered our product um, you know, below cost. And there, there's just so many sort of socioeconomic cultural barriers to even getting that produce into those stores. It's been quite challenging. So what we found is uh, the best way to impact that is to work with community partners. So we work with food rescue organizations, other nonprofits that are into um, food justice issues, rather than tackle those problems head on ourselves, just because those are large, complicated problems and it's not our, not our you know, core focus. But it's definitely a challenge, and you know, I think the biggest thing is, is that as we can prove our concept more and get more economies of scale and bring our overall price points down, you know, I, I'd love to be able to say that, yeah, our products are not just in Whole Foods, but hey, they're in bodegas across the city. Um, we have been able to find some success getting into um, some other store chains like Key Foods, um, among others, that generally you know, tend to be in lower income communities. So that's been a small win for us, but there's still a long way to go. Yeah, for us, it's less about what the community looks like now and more about what was happening there 100 years ago because that's when the buildings, that makes sense for a deep soil rooftop farm, were built. Um, our buildings were mostly built in, uh, you know, they're pre-war buildings. So uh, we have a 1917 building. Actually, the builder, uh, the architect and builder of our Navy Yard location um, was the same 
uh, organization that built our third farm here in Sunset Park. So we really like their work. Uh, <laughs> and we, those buildings just came up on their centennial anniversary. But critical to our mission is that people be able to access our, our spaces. Because um, really, you know, rooftop farms are never going to feed entire cities. Um, we will always, always need our established rural agricultural systems in place. Um, and one of the reasons that we feel so strongly about bringing farming to cities is to connect urbanites who buy a lot of that rural product to get our wheels turning, to, to help people understand the, the challenges facing farm agricultural labor, um, to get people really thinking when they pick up their fork three, four times a day, you know, what, what systems am I supporting? And the way we do that is by inviting people into our space to have these positive conversations around food and farming. And I say positive because, you know, so often I think we get hit with like, oh, is it organic? But then also were the people who grew it treated fairly? And, and you know what? I'm just, I'm just going to order in tonight. <laughs> it's just too complicated. So by creating a positive space to have these conversations, we hope not to alienate people, but um, to bring them in on the conversation through the joy and pleasure of that perfectly ripe tomato being picked fresh off of the, the tomato plant. And, it, and you know, it's a, it's a really challenging thing. The people side of our triple bottom line model proved to be probably the most challenging of the three. Um, and, and Viraj hit it exactly right. It's all about partnerships. They're, that's the, the fourth P of the triple bottom line model is, is really and truly partnerships. You have to find partners who struggle at the things you excel at and who excel at the things you struggle with. So we created a 501c3 nonprofit organization called City Growers. And City Growers brings K through 12 youth up to our farms. And they are teaching a whole generation of kids not only how to be more environmentally literate, but how to be good conscious eaters, but also just to reimagine what their cities look like and what farms are. Uh, and so, you know, I will, I, I've told this story many times, but I think it bears repeating. There's a young woman who lives in this neighborhood named Zadie, who's the daughter of the executive director of, uh, the, the founding executive director who just stepped down of our executive nonprofit. Okay, Zadie. Zadie's <laughs> five years old, grew up in New York City, started coming up to the farm when she was a year and a half, two years old. So she's been there, you know, she'll, she'll show you around. She'll give you the tour. Uh, and her school was going on a, a field trip to a rural farm with farm animals. And the teacher posed the question to the class, who can explain the difference between a rural farm with livestock and a zoo? Zadie raises her hand right away and says, farms have elevators and zoos don't. <laughs> Poor Zadie didn't understand why that wasn't the right answer. Uh, we want a whole generation of city kids to grow up expecting farms on their roofs and demanding it and building them and supporting them. So we really, the most important critical piece of where we're locating our farms is about the communities in which they, they sit and how, and can we be a positive presence in that community? Can we actually meaningfully integrate with the community the work that they're already doing, the way that they're already living? I think that is a great uh, place to wrap up. Um, thank you both so much for being here. Um, thank you all for joining us for this episode of the Farm Report from Brooklyn Podcast Festival. Thanks, Susan. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.